I walked into Haltech and bought an E6K engine management system. So that was a, um, a DOS based, um, five outputs in total. Wow. Yeah, Mate, we were putting them on, on RB26s on two days. <laughs> On this episode of Tuned In, we have Scott Hilsinger, also known as the Tuning Fork from Haltech, and Scott's been a pretty prominent figure at Haltech specifically for, as we'll find out in the podcast, around about 20 years, so pretty dedicated employee. Uh, Scott's pretty well known both internationally as well as more locally in Sydney where he's based for his involvement with a number of the workshops that favour the Haltech product. And he's also had his hand in a number of really interesting builds and particularly today uh, we dive into quite deep some of the aspects of tuning uh, some of the more high powered turbocharged engines that we see at the drag strip and I know that there's a lot of tuners out there who get a little bit scared off even at the entry level street car with a turbocharger are thinking that the games have changed a little bit, the rules have changed when it comes to tuning and particularly when we're starting to step these power levels up to two and a half, three, four, even 5,000 horsepower with a twin turbo pro mod V8. Uh, obviously this can be on face value a little bit scary so we talked to Scott about some of the techniques involved with tuning these cars, uh, talk about some of the aspects involved as well in getting them to go down the track because particularly when we're talking about uh, an engine making 4,000 odd horsepower it's not necessarily about making more power it's about power management I think that's something that's really easy to overlook it doesn't matter how much power we're making if we can't reliably get that to the track if it's going to go up and wheel spin uh, then that's not going to really help our cause and particularly if the driver has to back out or pedal the car because it gets loose because of wheel spin then often that's the end of the run uh, often that's going to result in them losing the pass as well so obviously anything we can do there to improve traction and manage the torque is really really valuable other aspect we talked to Scott about as well is uh, while it's not exactly cutting edge brand new for Haltech right now, their Nexus product. Talk about some of the aspects that uh, he's seen over his 20 odd years in the industry, some of the aspects of the technology involved, uh, looking at the very early E6K generation of Haltech ECUs through to the E11, the Platinum, uh, the Elite and now of course the Nexus and what's driven the requirements for those advances, obviously our modern crop of engines are much more sophisticated. But I won't ruin the surprise, that's what we've got in store. Uh, so before we get into the interview, uh, we'll just quickly cover off a post I put up on our Instagram recently. Now this is a photo that we actually took back in uh, 2019 when we were still allowed to travel around the world pre-COVID we went to the uh, Goodwood Festival of Speed and this is a Mercedes DTM race car from the 90s off the top of my head uh, and what was interesting here is naturally aspirated and they're using a slide throttle body arrangement. Uh, interesting sort of take on the individual throttle body aspect we more often see this with individual butterfly style throttle bodies uh, the problem with a butterfly throttle body is that even when it's wide open we still have a small restriction to airflow 
because of the uh, the actual butterfly itself as well as the uh, part that that's attached to the spindle that essentially goes through the middle of the, the throttle body. So we're not getting full unimpeded airflow. The slide style throttle body is uh, exactly as its name implies. We've essentially got a metal plate with round holes cut in it and when it's in the wide open position there is absolutely nothing to impede airflow. So uh, a bit of a benefit there in terms of uh, optimising airflow. One of the aspects with this though is uh, anything that uses individual throttle bodies like this we are required to use a different tuning strategy. Uh, manifold absolute pressure which we'd normally use with a speed density operating system no longer a really good indication of our actual load so typically we would use the alpha N or throttle position based load axis uh, load uh, measurement strategy instead where we are basing the vertical axis or load axis for our throttle, our, sorry our fuel and our ignition tables off the throttle position instead of manifold pressure. If you are interested in learning a little bit more about tuning, specifically we do cover alpha N versus conventional speed density as well as volumetric efficiency based tuning models, uh, you would be best to check out our EFI tuning fundamentals course which you'll find at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. If you want to get a little bit more involved in the practical aspects of tuning, we've got our practical standalone tuning course ideal for those of you who want to learn how to tune an aftermarket standalone ECU. And for listeners of this podcast, you can use the code PODCAST75. That'll give you $75 off the purchase of your first HPA course. And we'll chuck a link in the description you can follow uh, to make that purchase if you're interested. All right, with our introduction out of the way, let's get into our interview with Scott now. All right, welcome along to the podcast, Scott. And Scott, the tuning fork for those who maybe haven't heard of you, maybe been hiding under a bit of a rock. Uh, can you give us maybe like the 30,000 foot view of your background and how you got involved with tuning? Yeah, for sure. Look, thanks for having us, Andre. Um, mate, it all started probably when I just had finished high school, or probably in year 12. Um, I was building cars for mates at the same time I was going to school. Um, you might hear my child in the background screaming there. Sorry about that. We're, um, we're at home in lockdown. So, you know, a little bit different setting to, um, you know, to the workshop and the dining room that we're normally in. We make some allowances. Strange times call for strange measures. So, uh, as long as she's not in too much pain, let's carry on. No, no, there's a care out there. Look, um, but yeah, look, so in year 12, basically, um, I was building cars, pretty much Corollas, Datsuns, that sort of stuff for mates and doing engine conversions. So got to the point where you get an engine in a car, it's all pretty straightforward. Carburetor was never a big deal, but as soon as anything was fuel injected um, and all of my, the first sort of cars that I was mucking around with were CA18 and SR20 powered Datsuns, specifically 1600s. Yep, yep. Oh, let's just give us a, without trying to like throw you under the bus with your age here, give us a sort of idea of what, what, what sort of year were we talking here? Ah, uh, 2000, uh, I finished school in 2001, so I'm 38. Okay, right, cool. Um, so yeah, sort of 99, 2000, the golden era of auto salon and, you know, that, that <laughs> sort of, you know, that was, all, that was all the place where, you know, the paint jobs and chrome wheels and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think there was a golden era for uh, like a real big push with a lot of aftermarket ECU development as well. I mean, certainly that's sort of the time I, I got involved in the industry and, and we saw a lot of, of companies pop up and 
the tools that we had available all of a sudden really advanced. But it's not sort of spoil the surprise. So yeah, carry on. Um, so yeah, look. So from there, um, yeah, once I sort of got the first engines in the cars, I needed a solution to be able to tune the things. Yeah. Um, and Haltech were only just around the corner from where I lived at the time in Tarrant Point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sort of rolled in there to have a bit of a chat about how things work and what's going on um, and ran into a fellow called Adam Niche, who still um, is the tuner at Just Engine Management, tuner and owner. Yep. Um, yep. We've interviewed Adam before, very uh, smart guy. Perfect. We got on really well. Um, and um, yeah, so the first sort of car that I did, I set it up, got it running, got everything happening, tuned it, and then uh, got a phone call from Adam saying, oh, look, he's heading off to go and start you know, to start a, a tuning gig, I should drop in and, um, you know, and have a look for a job. So I kind of got thrust into it that way where I didn't ever really, didn't make a decision about a career or what I wanted to do. The decision was made for you. That was it. So I turned up and I thought, you know what, over the summer holidays after year 12, I'll just, you know, do this for six months or 12 months and, um, you know, that'll fill in a bit of time. And um, nearly 20 years later, I filled in a fair bit of time and I still haven't decided what, what I really want to do. <laughs> <laughs> Plenty of time left. There's no hurry. You can't rush these decisions. Yeah, absolutely. You know what? It, it's been a pretty amazing 20 years and something that um, yeah, I never would have thought this would have been my life direction, but it has certainly given me a lot of opportunities to meet a lot of people and learn a lot of stuff and um, you know, mingle with some of the, you know, the, the, the most serious sort of race cars in the world, which has been really cool. Yeah, I mean... <sighs> Australia in particular and Sydney is a, is a hotbed uh, for drag racing as well. There's a huge amount of uh, people uh, sort of really, really pouring a lot of blood, sweat and tears into some of these street cars, uh, some of these dedicated drag cars and obviously with Haltech right there in Sydney as well, every time we go there uh, th- there's a huge amount of them running the Haltech brand in particular. We've got uh, a couple, Croydon uh, and we've got... Um, yeah, there's Matooks. Matooks, um, that's the two I was looking for. Yeah, sort C&V, uh, C Mix. Yeah, yeah, I've got those two, though, duking it out with the GTRs, the R32 GTRs. That was where I was going with that, but thank you for giving me the uh, Matooks name there. It was just escaping me. Uh, okay, so let's bring it back a little bit. So at the point that you sort of uh, dived into working at Haltech, were you doing some tuning yourself or did you start sort of learning the tuning process with when you were at Haltech? So I definitely started learning the process when I was at Haltech. So I was sort of, before I was there, I'd sort of wired an ECU, done the configuration and punched enough numbers in to get something to run, to run, not run well, but run, yeah. get around the block and kind of understand what's going on, but had no idea about the theory behind anything and more trial and error to just sort of see how it works, which... yeah. Um, it's more, it's the way that I learn things is, is a bit more of trial and error and kind of getting a bit of experience and understanding what happens in the real world. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think probably the majority of people who are currently professional tuners, myself included, that that was the way we learned because at least particularly at the start of my career, uh, we had no resources like what HPA now offer, which was really the driving force behind why we started developing our tuning courses. So, uh, I mean, there's a lot to be said for trial and error and getting your hands on the tools. And I mean, even with with our courses, we we openly say, I mean, the courses are there to give you the knowledge, but ultimately it is a skill and like any skill, it needs to be honed and developed and that simply takes time doing it. Of course. And look, probably one of the first examples of trial and error like that that I had was 
uh, Andrew, a mate and I used to have, both of us had Mitsubishi Cordias, which were the cheapest and only turbocharged cars that we could afford at the time. So we both had Cordias and we would take them out on the weekends and we'd boost them as hard as we could boost them and we'd be crimping return lines and we'd be cutting map sensor wires and all sorts of stuff that didn't quite know what was going on, but we kind of knew how to keep them alive until that hole of piston and then the next weekend, we'd have the block in the car still. We'd be replacing one dead piston with another piston from another wrecker engine. Yeah. So that trial and error of figuring out how to avoid replacing one piston and rod combo at a time, that, you know. <laughs> it's There's an interesting point you bring up there because one of the, the common themes we hear when we talk about learning how to tune is, Oh, you just got to break some engines before you can figure it out. And I mean, obviously, you've just said you've, you've got a few whole pistons. There's some truth in that, but but in general, do you do you actually think that it's a necessity to go about breaking a whole bunch of engines while you're learning? Um, I don't think so. Um, I think at the time the technology was very different. You know, very important point to make there. Yes, um, we had petrol-based fuels. Um, at the you know a factory ECUs from 1980s um, and a bunch of signal benders to try and sort of figure out what's going on um, and yeah. zero data logging, no dynos, no wideband sensors because they were two and a half thousand dollars or something. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I, the technology's definitely come a long way, and yeah, you were definitely playing with with fire back back at that point with the tools we had available. Yeah. So look, so now I think now it's a bit of a different answer because today you would probably look at a car that runs quite well, get a bunch of your data logging stuff on it, measure your mixtures and start to get some experience like that. Say, okay, well, this factory car runs at this mixture. I can use my diagnostic tools to see what cam advance it's got, what ignition timing this car's running and what this style of engine uses Mm. and get your experience that way, knowing that that engine lives. Yeah, that's a, another really good point. You know, if you're starting from a position of zero experience, which obviously at some point we all are, we don't have to go and reinvent this. Looking at what the OEs are doing, exactly as you say, I mean, most instances, ninety five percent of the factory cars I tune are generally pretty conservative for obvious reasons. They've got factory warranties, so they're not making maximum power. So there's a there's usually a little bit of meat on the bone in terms of the amount of ignition timing you can you can add, and uh, generally they're a little bit fat in terms of the air fuel ratio. But it's going to give you at least a ballpark where you know that those numbers are going to give you a safe tune. I, I always say that. Uh, you know, when you're tuning low to moderately powered street engines, realistically, I, I don't see uh, a need to be damaging an engine to learn. Uh, but there, there, there's areas where, uh, when I was involved with some of the high horsepower drag stuff, I mean, when we had our 4G63 drag program and we had our own car and several customers' cars making you know, upwards of a thousand wheel horsepower, and, and you know, if you're trying to break world records, I mean, at that point, you're pushing for every last horsepower or kilowatt, and um, I mean, yeah, so, sometimes things will go wrong, but that's very different to your modified street cars. For sure. And look, I suppose it's that, um, you know, managing those, those combustion temperatures and man- managing engine temperature, I suppose, was probably what, what the majority of that comes down to, I suppose, where now that we've got so much access to dynos where we can, you know, we, we can measure engine torque so accurately and so well without having to go onto an engine dyno and ha- go through that whole route. 
Mm. Yeah, uh, the engine is often giving you a lot of signs that there's going to be a problem before there is one. So I look, and I guess that comes with experience where, um, you know, it probably contradicts the argument, isn't, doesn't it, to say, you know, with no experience, you just keep pushing and pushing until it breaks and it was telling you it was going to break. Yeah. Yeah, then back it off a couple of PSI. Yeah, yeah. That's the expensive way of finding the, the happy place. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the technology. We sort of touched on it already a couple of times. And obviously you've been with Haltech for, as you say, around 20 years. And um, yeah, can you give us an idea for the Haltech followers out there? What what was the sort of cutting edge product back when you joined? Um, well, when I started, the day that I, wa- I walked into Haltech and bought an E6K engine management system. So that was a, um, a DOS-based um, five output in total. Wow. So the five out, well, I should say it had four d- generic outputs, you know, like on off stuff for thermofans and fuel pumps. Yeah. Five uh, configurable outputs to use for fuel and ignition. So that could have been a distributor and sequential injection, or it could have been, you know, so on a four cylinder engine um, or wasted spark and then two outputs for batch fired injection, you know, so a total of five. Um, Mate, we yeah, were putting so. them on on RB26s, on 2Js, <laughs> on like, um, but yeah, lost for words. Just because you can do it and these days maybe it doesn't mean you should do it. But it, that, that was the, the technology yeah. that's available. And I mean, it's not just Haltech, that was kind of, you know, that's give or take, that, that was the sort of standard we were seeing from, from a lot of the aftermarket manufacturers. Yeah, um, so sort of. So I started with E6, the DOS-based E6Ks, uh, moved over to the E6X, which was very similar architecture, but went to the Windows-based tuning software, which was a, a leap ahead, but kind of forced the hand because all the DOS-based stuff was disappearing, you know, and, and Windows computers were coming through. Mm. Um, then we sort of moved across to the E8, E11 platform, which at the time was pretty groundbreaking as multiple had uh you know the e11 platform had um uh eight injector drivers eight eight or 12 eight injector drivers six ignition drivers so that was um you know starting to head in the right direction now, of course back with the e6k days as well i mean the requirements of the ecu were driven by the sophistication of the engines and we didn't have variable cam control we didn't have drive-by-wire throttle and those things weren't even a blip on the radar then so i mean it was simpler times with simpler engines so you know conversely we saw that that technology in the ecus as well for sure and look there were a lot less demands you know things were just different where there was that part where this was one of the very few options to tune your engine and simply Mm. make more power and at the time you know an rb26 making 300 kilowatts was the king yeah Um, yeah you know, idle control, you know, barely even on the radar. It was, you know, hold the throttle down to get the thing to run cold. Um, I, I think that the thing as well is as our engines have become more sophisticated and our ECUs have become more sophisticated, the the expectations from the customer is also increasing. And, you know, back at, at that point, yeah, if the car needed sort of six or eight attempts to get it to start when it was cold and it wouldn't idle for the first 10 minutes until it came up to temperature you know happy days everyone was just accepting that and these days even with an engine making three or four times the factory power we want to be able to turn the key and have it purr and sit there idling with with no no issues so you know that that's again driven First of all, the the requirements from the ECU, but it's also driven the level of, of the work ethic, I think it would probably be the way of, of putting it, of the tuners working on these cars. 
I, I just want to come back as well to so uh, back in the E6K days, even to the E11, I think in, in New Zealand here, the Haltech brand maybe wasn't quite as strong and as popular as it certainly is today. And back when I was running my old tuning business, I, I tuned a handful of those. And coming from just about every other brand, for those who haven't tuned them, it, it was quite unique. It was the bar graph style of, of tuning, which I found took me quite a lot to get my head around. You may or may not even know this. Do you, I'm interested what the sort of the driver was behind that bar graph style of tuning. And for those who don't know what I'm talking about here, uh, basically we had a two-dimensional slice through a fuel or ignition table and you'd go to each load point, I can't remember if it was load or RPM, I think it was load point, and you'd move the bar up or down for your fuel or your ignition. I mean, certainly it was effective, but for me the inability to see the entire map in three dimensions at one time, um, I found it made the job a little bit difficult. I don't know what your take on, on that was and if you know why that was the process that was used at the time. So the, the 2D load slice thing was pretty much from the beginning of time. So 1986 was the the very beginning of fully programmable engine management, which Haltech mm-hmm. used to have the rights to that. So they were the first ones to be doing it. Um, and at the time, the software got developed on a very early DOS-based machine that I think it was either IBM or Compaq um, actually sponsored those those machines to Haltech so that they okay. could start to develop this you know th- this tuning sort of platform and that that graphical display. Uh, it sort of got pushed through to say about the year two thousand, sort of give or take, with that load slice style method. Yeah. Um, where the company went through a whole bunch of changes where the previous owner passed away. And there was certainly a lull there for Haltech for sure, where there wasn't too much management. The company was kind of just floating through for a few years uh, until it got sold off to a conglomerate, including the current owner now. Mm-hmm. So that 2D sort of that that early series and up until probably the end of the E11 platform was the previous hierarchy yeah. where it definitely did take a long time to turn all that around and to start pointing the, the company in the right direction. Now, it took probably 10 years of a lot of investment, a lot of hard work and a lot of training of the newer generation of engineers coming through to then turn it around and start pointing it in the direction that people expected compared to the competition. Yeah. yeah. So Haltech certainly had a leg up, I would say, from 86 to you know late 90s. And you maybe um, fell a little bit behind with that lack of, of leadership you're mentioning. Ab- absolutely, yeah. Okay. So with the death of the um, you know of the previous owner, and then the new owners taking over, having to sort of understand how everything works, and then you know start building from there. I think as well, a part I've talked to obviously a lot of ECU manufacturers, and I think the part that, that's easy to overlook when you're out there in the enthusiast market is you know when a company decides to to make a new product. You know, that product isn't sort of a snap your fingers and uh, it's released to market next month. You know that that can be a process that can take you know a, cu- a couple of years. And even once it gets to market, obviously with every product we see updates with firmware as bugs are ironed out and new features are added. So uh, I mean, it, it's not a, a quick process to turn that ship around, is it? No, and and I think we're often our worst enemies with that, where we're always frustrated that we want the new products out, we want the new microprocessors, we want the new firmware, we want all the, and we're so critical of what we're doing um, that we don't sort of realise and we often forget that there's not many players out there anymore producing world-class engine management systems. Most of them have sort of dropped off now 
Um, mm. And I think that, you know, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. Everyone would be producing engine management systems, but it's just not the case. It takes a lot of engineers and it takes a lot of tuners and it takes a lot of real world experience to get a product to market that works well, that, that you don't need to be a high level engineer to use. Um, yeah. So, and it works well from an very, very, very entry level user up to a high level professional. There, there is a lot of magic to get it. To, to where it is. I'll just point out, Scott, that we do mention it's actually on the back of my jersey here that there's no magic when it comes to tuning. So <clears throat> oh, no. Maybe there's a little, little bit of magic when it comes to building ECUs. I don't know. That's not my area. <laughs> just want to clarify that. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, in that um, part of it, the firmware guys and the, the hardware guys, they to me, they are. I've worked with the, with them all for a long time, mate. They are next level people. It's pretty amazing what what they can do with this stuff. No doubt, they're just staring into the matrix every day. All right, so so let's just talk about the the newer generation of of the Haltech Nexus, which has come out. Well, it's not brand new now. It's it's been out for a little bit. So. Obviously, for, for those who aren't aware of the Nexus, it's also incorporating essentially a, a PDM power distribution module as well, which is, at least as far as I know, that's that's the first time I've seen the two packaged together. Uh, where do you see the, at least in the ECU side of things, we'll leave the PDM out of it for now, but in, in the ECU side of things, what is that Nexus given Haltech as a step up in terms of functionality? Basically what I mean is how is it going to do a better job of running my engine? What functionality and features does that give me that uh, I didn't have on the the previous generation Elite, for example? For sure. So the first thing, so the the Nexus is the next generation, new processor, new everything that we've been working on for a couple of years. Um, the Nexus platform has got way more inputs and outputs than we've ever been able to offer. So we were always sort of limited by the ECU connectors. So we're using the AMP60 pin on the yep. Elite platform. Uh, whereas on the Nexus, we've got 120 pins still using the AMP 1 mil super seal. Yeah. Uh, it's also got a four-pin uh, DTP connector as well, as well as two battery, like Shawlock battery lugs. Doing that freed up a bunch of those AMP pins because we don't need to use them for power supplies. Um, so that allows us to do stuff. So like it's got eighteen injected, eighteen sequential injector drivers if you want. It's got twelve sequential ignition drivers if you want. It's got thirty analog inputs that are capable of. Uh, 300 channels of logging at at up to a thousand hertz. Yeah, okay. That, that's been driven, I guess, by what we've seen, particularly in that drag racing. We, we briefly touched on uh, the the advances in the amount of power people are making now, particularly some of the fuels that require higher uh, fuel mass to be delivered for a given power, such as methanol or E85, even. So that's that's driving these engines to require. Uh, multiple stages of injection so that's what you're covering there you said 12 injector drives uh, yeah so uh, 12 ignition drivers 12 ignition drives sorry. Um, yeah eight it's got 18 injector drivers 18. Um, the reason why 18 was the number was that 16 injectors is a staged promod v8 yeah um, and we're using sort of you know a 5000 cc primary and a, a 7000 or 9000 or 10000 cc secondary um, but then the extra two drivers there are, are typically used as extra injectors spraying after the turbocharger. 
Okay. So they're still part of the fuel model, but they use an injector driver there to be able to spray a bit of fuel to, to bring some inlet temperatures down. Now, that's an aspect as well, just for those who maybe aren't familiar, you're not typically going to do that with a petroleum petrol-based fuel gasoline that that's that's a, a methanol thing so uh, you're really talking about this uh, in exchange for in, 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 instead of using a intercooler so you're actually using that uh, that methanol out of the compressor outlet where the the air is superheated and you're using that to provide some form of, of intercooling that's right yeah so traditionally, you could do that, obviously, with any ECU, but it, whether or not it was incorporated into the fuel model, that, that's a, a completely separate question. And then you end up, if it's not, you end up fudging your fuel map to kind of account for the fact there's more fuel going in, correct? Spot on. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that's why the Nexus here ended up with that number of injector drivers as a, you know, sort of, so that was kind of the brief was the ECU for a, for a 5,000 horsepower V8 Pro Mod. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. But yeah, to, to answer the question, but that, yes. So the fueling part of it, so using the extra injectors for ethanol or methanol at the front, um, it's a really nice way to pull a bit of temperature out of the inlet air. Yeah. yeah. Um, which does result in mile an hour at the end of a racetrack. Yeah, there's always the debate, and I mean, we went through this back in the development of, of my own car. I stuck with the intercooler just because it was something I knew from gasoline-based fuels, but you know, we, we saw plenty of cars equally as fast, if not faster, both with and without intercoolers. So I, I think from what I see, a lot of it does come down to maybe a bit of personal preference in terms of the engine builder and the tuner as to whether they want that intercooler there or not. I tend to agree to a certain power level. I think that once we're sort of talking about sort of 2000 horsepower plus somewhere around there or, you know, 200 mile an hour, somewhere around there plus, we'd start to decide whether a, a front mounted air to air intercooler is, is, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze? Is it pulling enough air? Has it got enough mass to, to sink that air, the temperature? Um, versus having that no restriction through the inlet and putting fuel across to pull the temperature out. Totally. I mean, the other thing I'll point out there is, I mean, again, very specific to drag racing. More often than not, we see uh, those who do choose to keep the intercooler, they'll go water to air where they can use an ice water slurry, which is what, what we used in my own car. And the other advantage there is not just a case of you can start with that water below, well below ambient temperature, but the the bigger advantage there is it, it reduces the aerodynamic drag because you aren't actually passing air through the intercooler. And again, if, not that I got got up to 200 mile an hour, but obviously the faster you go, the more the aerodynamics actually play a big impact in, in the overall performance of the car. Uh, just coming back to some more of the other specific functions around some of this high horsepower drag racing stuff. And I mean, a lot of this does filter down to our street cars anyway. But so what other functionality have you got in that Nexus that's, that's really going to support those sort of, you've talked about about 5,000 horsepower Pro Mod engines. But yeah, can you give us some other examples? So the other thing, so it's got a six-axis G-meter on board as well. Okay. So that allows us to do all of our accelerometer stuff. It gets, like, we get a whole bunch of, basically, of, of car data from that that we can map against and do our boost control or our traction control strategies against, which helps. Yep. Um, so you're talking G plus uh, pitch and pitch your role? It, it, it does, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So an IMU, in other words. IMU, yep, is exactly, yep, exactly what it is. 
I know that um, one of the problems we see, and I have no idea if you've actually incorporated those sorts on the radar, a lot of the um, problems we see with some of the classes where they're not allowed uh, wheelie bars is, is uh, wheelie control. Uh, are you doing anything cool with the IMU around that? Because that can actually sense if the, the wheels are in the, on the, in the air and what the uh, pitch angle of the car is. For sure. So we've got a full wheelie control strategy, um, which you can either use the IMU um, or you can use like a laser ride height sensor. Yeah. Um, and from that, detect your sort of your, your ride angle or your pitch angle and then decide on what to do about the power. So typically with that, what I find is that the best way to combat it is if we get to a certain height um, or a certain pitch angle that instead of doing like a reactive control and trying to choose a particular angle, I actually find that cutting the engine power completely for X amount of time in order for the car to pick up wheel speed at the same time, then once you reintroduce the power, more often than not, you're not going to have enough power to lift again anyway. Sure. Yeah. Um, so in order, yeah, so basically cutting the engine power and increasing the, the road speed seems to handle that. And that's the way that that function works. Um, pretty yeah. important. Yeah. Uh, in terms of, you mentioned cutting the power, so what what control have you got around how how are you actually doing that is are you talking uh retard uh fuel cart ignition card or a combination uh, a combination so that's definitely up to the tuner um, yep. but we do a percentage cut so we can do a percentage of ignition events injection events a combination um we can do either like an ignition retard or a, if it's got an electronic throttle or some type of a, um, you know, adjusting the throttle. Um, in the drag racing sort of stuff we're talking about, I find that a percentage-based ignition cut is about the only strategy that works fast enough in order to, to sort of sure. get the car to the end of the track. If we're doing something with boost control or electronic throttle, Yes, it'll, to respond. it'll do something and in different circumstances in circuit cars or in street cars, it's probably a better option, whereas in a drag car, the car's not going to respond like that and you're going to get beaten for sure if you're using anything except a percentage-based ignition cut. Okay. Once the car's actually off the line, in terms of other torque management as you're going down the track, so I, I, in a lot of drag racing classes, traction control, as it, as it is, as we see it in a circuit racing, road racing application, is often usually banned. Um, what, what other options have you got there for torque management? Because it's particularly a lot of these high-powered cars on a small radial tyre and an unprepped track. It's not really a case of how much power can we make. It's more a case of managing the power to what the track will actually support. And that's really the key to, to a fast, fast time. Yeah, 100%. And like you said, so when we think about traction control normally in a circuit car or in a road car, we think about four wheel speed sensors and we think about a a percentage slip between, you know, front and rear or left and right. Mm. Uh, We do offer a strategy like that for the circuit car stuff. So we can program a a percent, an allowable percentage slip between each wheel. Yeah. And you can have a bunch of different maps for that or a bunch of, um, you know, different strategies set up on a keypad or a trim knob or whatever you want for, you know, all the different sort of track conditions. In a drag car, yeah, we're not really often allowed to have individual wheel speed sensors. So a lot of the traction control strategies are set up based on drive shaft RPM and engine RPM. Yep. Um, If we're not allowed to have a drive shaft RPM sensor, it's based on engine RPM only. Um, Mm -hmm. 
but typically a combination of a target drive shaft RPM and a target engine RPM uh, are the way to do it. So depending on, like you said, the tyre that we're using, depending on the weight of the car uh, and depending on the power that the car's got, we'll set up a target drive shaft curve. So we'll say, you know, at one second out, we want it to be running X drive shaft RPM. At two seconds out, we want this. At three seconds out, we want this. If we're above that or below that value, we'll start either introducing more power if that's available with the engine. Um, if we're above that line, we'll start doing a percentage cut in order to meet our target. So, I mean, to, to really sort of boil that down and make it nice and simple, when you're talking about that relationship between time and drive shaft RPM, really the drive shaft RPM ultimately is tied directly to the vehicle speed. So, you really, you're profiling what the run should look like with no wheel spin. And you, you're going to have to obviously have that data from some good clean runs or at least build it up over time. And what you're saying is essentially if the RPM of the drive shaft spikes above this theoretical perfect run, then what that means is that the rear tyres have broken loose and we're into wheel spin. So we want to clamp that and stop it. Perfect. Yep, exactly right. And remembering as well that doing that, the idea is they talk about riding the riding the curve. You want to come, yep. you, you want your drive shaft to be just below that theoretical curve that you know is is the right thing to be running. Um, touching the curve, like every time we hit it, the, the car is dropping power. So ideally, you want to ride the curve without touching it. Um, yeah. This, this is not a function to make the car go faster. It's a function to make the car consistent across sure. all track conditions. Um, I think that the other thing to sort of, for people to understand is this isn't... Uh, we're not using this to, to necessarily cheat because in the ideal world we don't really want to be introducing cuts and, and sort of you know we want to try and tune the power delivery so that the car is always hooked up. Generally, as soon as the thing breaks traction, uh, probably the the run the ET and the mile an hour are out the door anyway. Uh, I I do recall and I just want to get your take on this uh, from a tuning perspective. We we interviewed uh, Eric, I think it was from Proline Racing. Uh, who built a lot of those sort of 4,000, 5,000 horsepower ProMod V8s that you've been talking about uh, back at PRI a, a couple of years ago. And um, he, he made an interesting point that essentially they, they want the tune-up to basically be dialed into the point where they don't need any cuts uh, because at that sort of power level, uh, ignition cuts in particular can actually end up damaging the engine pretty quickly. So what's, what's your take on that? Uh, I've heard people talking about this and I've heard people talking about dropping ignition events or multiple ignition events favoring individual cylinders so mm -hmm. i i'm probably a bit neutral to that to be honest where i haven't seen it happen personally where yeah if the engine management system picks on say one cylinder over and over and over again i can kind of get it that something might happen there um i don't i've heard people talking about hydraulicing engines and doing all of this sort of stuff um at the RPM that they're running, it's just not the case. It's not going to happen. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I can't see a, a good case for, for that occurring. Uh, I mean, I guess when you're talking about these engines making 5,000 horsepower, you have uh, one single ignition event go out on one cylinder. I could see that uh, putting, uh, you know, changing the harmonics in the crankshaft. So, I, I mean, ultimately, I guess that's a potential for an upshot. I, I, like you, I haven't seen it myself, but I'm not operating at that level. I think... From my experience, I think the answer is that it's not a problem 
And the reason I think that is because the number of logs that I've reviewed to be looking for other things or to be, uh, you know, looking for that, that extra tenth of a tenth um, mm. and seeing the amount of two, three, four, five thousand horsepower engines that are simply riding the curve the entire track. Um, and that's not, um, you know, that's not having a go at anyone. That's, there's a lot of times where that makes complete sense to do that because if you need to get from point A to point B and you've got a mechanical failure you're dealing with, you've got a tire problem, you've got, um, parts that you're using that you don't know enough about and you ran out of time on the day. Uh, there's a lot of good reasons to be riding the curve in order to get sure. the points or to just, you know, what, what do they say? To finish first, you must first finish. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's not always that we're we're racing for PVs and world records. Uh, I mean, if you're actually uh, racing against competitors, it's the person who gets to the finish line first, not necessarily the one with the quickest ET. So granted, there's a little bit more to it than that. All right, so seeing as we're sort of uh, centred on this topic of, of some of this high horsepower stuff, which is obviously near, near and dear to my heart, uh, let's talk about a few of the other aspects. So uh, we've seen a lot, lot more technology develop around individual cylinder, lambda sensors, uh, EGTs, exhaust gas temperature per cylinder is definitely nothing new. And back when I was developing my own drag car, individual cylinder lambda was just prohibitively expensive. So we relied on exhaust gas temperature for individual cylinder fuel trimming and most people would think that uh, you know we've got an equal air distribution to every cylinder but of course that's definitely not always the case and while in a uh, modified streetcar, if we've got a slight variation in air fuel ratio from one cylinder to another, it's probably not going to be the end of the world when you're starting to get up to, you know, sort of 250, uh, maybe three, 400 horsepower per cylinder or more, uh, you really want to be on point. Can you give us your take on on the technologies available, EGT versus individual cylinder lambda? So I know in a lot of the pro stock stuff, um, individual lambda is is definitely the way that everything works, um, and that makes sense. So they always are using a combination of wideband and just the same old school plug shopping, plug reading um, to see what's happening. Um, obviously, their field is extremely tight, yeah. so tuning a V8 aspirated engine like that as eight individual cylinders um, with eight individual 3D uh, fuel and ignition trims makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, In my experience in the turbocharged stuff, either lower, I shouldn't say lower, in the turbocharged street or, um, you you know, 150 mile an hour drag racing or 200 mile an hour drag racing, um, it seems like the wideband stuff with the exhaust back pressure compensation probably doesn't offer enough versus the cost of it, in my opinion. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's definitely, it, it, even today with wide bands coming down, you know, if you've got four or six, eight cylinders, there's a huge cost compared to EGTs. In rough terms, I think you could probably pick up an exhaust gas temperature sensor for maybe maybe 100 bucks or thereabouts yeah. so it's not a huge expense and I mean the life expectancy as well of the sensors plus the complexity of fitting them obviously we don't want the sensor protruding into the exhaust manifold or it's going to affect our flow as well so there's a bit to think about there I know a lot of tuners 
uh, are using those for the initial tuning on the dyno and then they'll actually be removed and blanked. So that's one consideration. Uh, you also mentioned the exhaust back pressure compensation. I think that's it's an interesting bit that a lot of tuners and, and enthusiasts out there probably just completely overlook. Can, can you talk to us about what that means, what that term means and why it's important? Well, the way that those wide bent oxygen sensors work, whether it's a Bosch, like LSU style um, or an NTK style sensor, are affected by the pressure and temperature in the atmosphere that they're measuring. So if we're putting a wide band sensor in an exhaust manifold with a pressure ratio of let's let's just say two to one, for example, and then we're also putting a wide band sensor after the the turbocharger in the dump pipe, um, we're going to see drastically different results unless we've got pressure and temperature compensations on the sensor that is really in the danger zone. Um, yeah. Remembering as well, the sensor in the danger zone is certainly not going to last as long. So even then, I often find myself uh, probably tr- doubting the equipment, which I know I shouldn't, but once you've two-stepped a car a bunch of times and it's got O2 sensors in the exhaust manifold, uh, I would... Typically, I'm, I'm more interested in EGTs in the exhaust manifold and a single O2 sensor per bank yeah. to be looking at my overall mixture. So I'm, I'm more looking for EGTs to look at whether the engine is operating equally. Yep. Then I've got an O2 sensor down the tailpipe to look at my overall mixture. And then I'm also looking at plugs to then go through and double check that all of that's right and everything sort of adds up. All right. You just mentioned a heap of stuff there Sorry. that's all really interesting that I want to dive into and unpack. But let's just start again for those who maybe aren't aware. When we've got the the wideband sensor, which is always our primary input for air fuel ratio, that's what we rely on. And typically we're going to have one of those in a aspirated engine fitted in the collector where it's monitoring all of the cylinders or in the turbo engine post turbocharger. Again, it's monitoring all of the cylinders that are connected to that turbo. And the part that's really easy to overlook is it's actually giving us the average air fuel ratio of all of the cylinders it's monitoring. So in a four-cylinder engine, we could likely have one cylinder that's maybe 10% lean, uh, another cylinder that's 10% rich, and two that are right on point, and the overall, the average still comes out reading what we expect. So that's the problem that we're trying to face. And as I mentioned, in a, a lightly tuned streetcar, 10%, I mean, it's not nice, but you, know, might, you might probably live through it. You're definitely not going to live through it when the, the specific power levels climb. So that's why that individual cylinder lambda can come in helpful. I'll just mention about that, that back pressure compensation because this is something I've played around with a lot. And uh, the a lot of these wideband controllers now, you can feed uh, exhaust back pressure co- uh, sensor into it so it will automatically compensate. From the top of my head, I think that compensation from Bosch actually only runs out to 1.5 bar of positive pressure, which w- w- we can easily be well above that. So that sort of starts to make you question, well, is it worth even bothering? And I've always looked at it like you've just said, I use the post-turbocharger lambda sensor for my fuel tuning, and then I'm using those individual cylinder lambda sensors. Basically, I don't care if they're measuring air fuel ratio lambda or, or fluffy unicorns. I just want to know I've got the same number of fluffy unicorns on each cylinder, the number itself irrelevant to me. But you, you also mentioned there two-stepping the car. So... I 100% agree with you. So uh, give us a quick rundown on like what, what's that going to do to the sensor? Why is that a problem? Well, the shock that that's going to put through the wafer in that particular sensor is like they were never, ever designed to do that. Um, wideband sensors, 
As far as I'm aware, I don't know of any factory wideband O2 sensor that's pre-turbocharger in a factory uh, two, 300 horsepower car, let alone a 1,000 horsepower car that warrants uh, investigation into putting wideband sensors pre-turbo. I'll actually, I'll actually yeah. stop you. Yeah. What have you got? I can't remember off the top of my head the part number. I actually have a, a, a Bosch... O2 sensor sitting on my workbench waiting to go in a car that um, Scott from uh, Mtron actually gave to us for one of our, our customer Mtron projects and that is a OE part that is actually designed for pre-turbocharger quite interestingly. Wow. The, the, the theory on it, which I haven't been able to back up with data, is that it's designed to withstand higher exhaust gas temperature as well as higher pressure and be reliable. Uh, the output should be accurate at higher pressures. Uh, so far, the information that I've actually found on that sensor just matches the run-of-the-mill LSU. So I, I, I don't have anything more, but apparently there is an OE part number designed purposely for pre-turbo. I'm intrigued, and I'll certainly have a look, but if you and I are not quite sure or don't know about this just yet, um, yeah, I would watch probably... Watch space. Yeah, watch this. Yeah, I think that's a very reasonable thing to say. Um, on that... Um, so we're typically going across to the NTK sensors because we're yep. finding them a little bit more reliable, um, especially with the richer mixtures that we need to be working with now. Um, yeah. yeah, the NTK to- was always my, my sensor of choice for methanol fuels or basically anything sort of drag related. Like you said, they were just expensive, whereas mm. now, um, so the Haltech control into the, the Nexus series ECU, um, the you, you can choose an LSU 4.9 or an NTK to put two of them directly into the unit. Yeah. Uh, Haltech will be releasing like in the next couple of weeks, um, standalone single channel and dual channel NTK wideband controllers as well. Right. Okay. Um, at a very reasonable price. So it'll be the first NTK controller on the market that is, uh, you know, hobbyist pricing. Uh, but getting back to the original question about, yeah, two-stepping a car with a LSU-style 4.2 or 4.9 wafer in the exhaust manifold, uh, you could probably two-step that on, you know, the number of times you could two-step that would be on one hand before I would see one of four O2 sensors fail or start reading drastically wrong. 100%, yeah, couldn't agree more. Uh-huh. Actually, just um, while while I you were talking there, I just actually had a quick Google, and uh, that uh, sensor that I was talking about is called a LSU ADV. So yeah, right, uh, okay. I'll yeah, have, have a look into that yeah. after after we've done. All right, um, so just yeah. just on that quickly, sorry, just yeah. for the last point of the NTK stuff and wideband controllers. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, in order to combat that, there's t- a couple of brands of wideband controller, including the Haltech. Um, we actually modify the the NTK sensor externally. So they're all sleeved externally okay. so that instead of... So there's a couple of brands that have done... AFM did it from back in the day mm-hmm. um, where they actually put a sleeve around the outside of the O2 sensor so it's only got the sampling through the, the tip. It doesn't actually do any of the sampling around the outside. Okay. Um, in my experience, it doesn't change the sample rate that we're seeing into our control systems at all, um, and that tends to get the sensor living a whole lot longer um, with no side effects in in the um, you know in the environments we use them in. Yeah, yeah, I and mean, I think it, it just comes down to having a little bit of an understanding of uh, just how fragile these sensors are, and yeah, as you say, the environment, particularly pre-turbo with a two-step 
it's pretty brutal. So, yeah, we, we can't be too surprised if they don't live, which really comes back to what I was saying before. A lot of tuners will use those for dyno work and they might combine those with EGT, which I'm going to jump into in a second. And then once they've got everything dialed in and they're happy, and got a bit of an understanding of what the EGT variation looks like when the lambdas are matched, then they can take those lambda sensors out before the car actually goes to the track. So getting onto the EGT, so what we're really looking at here is, well, when we're trying to use these for air fuel ratio, fuel trimming cylinder to cylinder, what we're kind of working that basis on is the fact that as the air fuel ratio moves leaner, the exhaust gas temperature increases. The question we always get asked is twofold. First of all, what is a maximum safe EGT? And I see you smiling there and we'll get into that. Uh, and then the next one is like when, when you're tuning using EGT for cylinder fuel trimming, what sort of allowable variation, what, what sort of range are you, you aiming for? Um, so what's the maximum allowable EGT? Um, all right, so the first thing I'm going to admit here is that I do EGTs in Fahrenheit and I do everything oh. else in Celsius. And I apologize, but that's just very, the way. Uh, very American of you. That's just the way that it is. Um, okay. Uh, what's the maximum allowable EGT? Um, well, that depends on how many valves you've got, your valve surface area and, and how much heat you can dissipate through that, through that valving system into the cylinder head and get out of that cylinder. So if you're running a bit of old farm equipment with two valves in it that bang around, um, I think that the EGT is, you know, something, you know, you might end up with 1100 or something, 1050 or 1100 Fahrenheit as the upper limit. Whereas if you're running a high tech four cylinder or six cylinder, you might end up with, um, say 1250 Fahrenheit as a, you know, as an everyday sort of, you know, as a, as a, yep, it, it'll run forever. Yep. And as soon as you start hitting 1450 Fahrenheit, you wonder if it's going to idle at the end of the track. Yeah. And as soon as you're at 1500 Fahrenheit, you start having to rev it in order to bend those valves straight again for the next round. I think that the other thing, how I sort of always answer this question as well, is there's a lot more to understand than just the, the number that the exhaust gas temperature sensor is, is punching out. And I mean, uh, a safe air fuel ratio for a, a pump gas based fuel versus methanol, chalk and cheese. Uh, the numbers that you'd live with on pump gas, uh, you're going to be rebuilding your engine pretty quickly if you're on methanol fuel. And then the other thing is, well, where is that sensor actually placed in the exhaust manifold? Uh, and how far from the head? Obviously, the further we get away from the head, that affects the exhaust gas temperature. And whether the probe, the, the, a big one that I find, in a place I see a lot of people go wrong when they're installing them, is getting them consistent in terms of both the, the distance from the valve, which I just mentioned, but also uh, how far it's protruding out into the exhaust manifold. So if you've got one that's sitting on the side of the, the runner wall versus one right in the middle, I mean, so there's so many variables here that I personally find it hard to sort of state, here's a black and white number, this is, this is dead, this is alive. Um, consistency is a really good point, what you're saying there. So um, physically mounting the EGTs, my simple advice is always grab a piece of timber that's 10 mil or 15 mil wide, sit that against the, you know, against the exhaust manifold. And that's where your EGT bungs should be, hopefully. And they, yep. if you can't get one of them within that distance, well, all of them have to be the same distance from the flange. That's just bad luck. If it doesn't look pretty, that's unfortunate. Yeah. 
Yeah, they're not there to look pretty. They're there to do a job. Uh, actually, one thing that uh, caught me out with that as well was uh, with some cylinder head designs, and we saw this, I think it was a, the FA20, and the distance between the valves and the exhaust flange, the way the head is designed, with one being basically a straight run out from the valves to the header flange, and the other one being a bit of a dog leg, uh, the distance between the valve and the flange is actually different too. So th- there's lo- lots of traps. Yeah, in very good point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. No, that, that I think we've done probably exhaust gas temperature yes. sensors to death here. Uh, in, in terms of the other big input here that that we look at, I mean, any turbocharged car, but it becomes much more critical when we're talking about a high-powered drag car, uh, boost control. Mm-hmm. So particularly recently we've seen uh, Turbo Smart come out with their electronic uh, wastegate and OEs have been using electronic wastegates for, for a while now. Uh, what's your take? I think, if I remember correctly, the Nexus was one of the first ECUs that had direct support for that uh, TurboSmart wastegate. Uh, reason being, from what I understand, talking to TurboSmart, they can draw a maximum of 20 amps, which is problematic for a lot of the ECUs using the AMP SuperSeal 1.0 terminals because of the current handling of the terminals. Now getting too far into electronics. So how how have uh, how how to dealt with that? So we we work pretty closely with Turbo Smart, and we have had a bunch of Turbo Smart e gates in the office for a fair while now. Um, support so firmware support still has not been released for the Nexus okay. platform. Um, we're lucky in the way that we've got through the PDM. So we've got our two like four twenty five amp outputs. So you could use them. Um, or you could use a couple of the 8-amp outputs, or you could use a couple of the H-Bridge. So the, the Nexus has got four uh, you know, four H-Bridge drivers that could do two drive-by-wire throttles or a, a throttle and a exhaust valve or whatever, um, or an E-Gate. Um, yeah. The current that the E-Gate pulls is considerable um, at the end of its range. So when it's jamming shut or when it's wide open, it can pull a huge amount of current, which, like you say, is is going to be problematic on a one mil pin. Yeah. Um, in saying that, we're probably a little bit late to the party with the E-Gate stuff because we're looking at it a little bit differently. So we've done um, a full auto um, calibration process, very similar to how we do our electronic throttle calibration process. Right. Um which makes it super easy. You wire your position sensor, you wire your two H-bridge pins to the valve, you press auto calibrate. It'll open and shut the valve a bunch of times. It'll find all of the stiction points and it will figure out exactly where the valve is truly shut and truly open. Um, okay. This is one of the ways that we've avoided those huge current problems Yeah. by not allowing the valve to stick. Okay. Um, so... And the second part of that is with the support for the E-Gate, we're doing it a little bit differently where we're actually mapping the exhaust flow so that the, the wastegate flow rather than the, the, the valve position. Okay. Uh, and we do this because the valve position isn't really directly related to the flow of the valve because as soon as the thing lifts off the seat, we've got a huge amount of flow, but yeah. then- as we start to increase the position, that flow doesn't really change as much. So could you almost liken that flow to the nonlinearity of a, of a throttle but, uh, butterfly? Exactly the same thing. Yeah, exactly the same thing. So sort of looking at that bell curve and trying to map that so that at the end, the user can 
use the boost control strategy in a way that it's going to be repeatable and you're not going to have to have experience with an e-gate to understand how to map that. It'll be as simple as zero to 100% is zero to 100% exhaust flow through the gate. Okay, so once you've got it at that point, you could really, from the tuner's perspective, no different than a base duty cycle table for the conventional three-port solenoid. No, uh, about the only difference is there's going to be, there's a bit of work involved in, in a normal pneumatic style wastegate. We've got our spring, we've got our reference pressure. And so we've kind of got that, that reference pressure sort of built into the gate, right? So that no matter what, let's just say, you know, there was no electronic intervention whatsoever and the wastegate spring is going to open at, let's say 10 pounds. Mm -hmm. We don't quite have that with an electronic wastegate. So it yeah, doesn't sure. actually get held shut until 10 pounds. And so that's another control system that we need to have in place there, which we haven't had to have before with any other electronic boost control strategies. Yeah, interesting. I hadn't really considered that too much. We haven't dived into the to the E-gate too deeply so far. But um, yeah, I mean, a conventional pneumatic wastegate, as long as the wastegate and the pneumatic system itself is functioning, if the electronics fall off a cliff, well, Technically, once you get over the, the base spring pressure, it should still open, barring a hole in a line or something like that. So, yeah, with the electronic wastegate, we don't really have that. There's no, there's no conventional safety system built into the gate. Yeah, so there's a little bit of extra stuff there that we need to do just to make sure that we've got everything on the right track. Um, in the development that we've done for that, so we've got a couple of test cars. Um, one of the test cars has been a mighty Barra-powered Falcon because, you know, it just makes sense to have a car like that um, to be sort of mapping the flow, just mapping how things work and basically setting up our control strategy so that that system works as a pneumatic or, you know, works the same way that you would expect a pneumatic controller to work, uh, which is part of sort of the Haltech philosophy, I suppose, is that we want people to use this system. We want people to put an e-gate on their car so that they can get infinitely varied levels of boost pressure whenever they want. Um, but we we don't want you to have to mess around with it for three days to to be able to map it out in a in a sort of open loop-ish strategy based on valve position because you're not going to enjoy it. Yeah, I think that's a really important point to to actually note there and it doesn't just go for boost control because I've seen obviously over my career spans similar to yours and the advances we've seen in the technology that are in our modern crop of engines and the ECUs as we've alluded to already and the problem with this is that as things get more complex we need to give a solution to the tuner uh, so that they can actually get the result because there's no point having the most complex system in the world with all of the available parameters that can we can get perfect control but then the tuner either doesn't understand the system or in order to map it as you say needs needs three days on the dyno to get it working how it should so there's sort of this balance between making the system complex enough to do a really good job but making it simple enough that the tuner can do it and particularly for commercial tuning as well you have to be able to do it in a time-efficient manner because you know, no one's going to want to bring their car to you and get a $5,000 bill for, for mapping the boost control. That's just not going to fly. Spot on. And that's in the background at Haltech, that's probably where I've got a lot of influence. So Mitch and myself deal with a lot of that part of it. So we're kind of the, um, you know, the interface between the real users and our engineering team because yeah. if you left it to the engineering team, well, the product would never be released, and we all know that. Yeah. Whereas Mitch and I are there to be the realists to say, right, what's the actual problem? 
what level of experience do we expect a high level tuner to use? What level of experience do we have? Do we expect a low level tuner to have? And then how do we make it work for everybody? So we need to have the right base settings. We need to have everything there so that uh, we just basically we don't waste time. I am um, mm. always on the side of the tuner where kind of I often talk about the four hour tune and say like, you know, and I know it probably won't be popular with a lot of people, but the reality is to run a successful tuning shop, it should take you four hours to do the, you know, obviously there's temperature compensation stuff, but four hours the is basic, kind the of- The basic stuff on the dyno. Yeah, I, I 100% agree on a simpler engine, probably yeah, even two hours is achievable. I completely agree for sure. So if you spent four hours mucking around trying to calibrate your your throttle body- which is, which can actually happen. Well, mate, it's too much. If, if you've spent two hours mucking around with your CAN protocol trying to marry this CAN device to this dash to this keypad, it, it, I don't, I still don't understand how you can charge for that work, um, as a professional. If yeah. you're at home experimenting, absolutely. I'm, I'm a hundred percent for it to, to, um, you know, advance your knowledge and so that you can have a bit of a tinker and learn how everything works. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I've had I've come from both sides of that coin as well because I ran a commercial shop for long enough, and exactly what you're saying, you know, four four hours if you if you can't do the 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 dyno component of the tune in that time, then uh, barring some problem that's crept in, then then there's that's going to be difficult to to do that as a commercially viable job. And then obviously later on with High Performance Academy, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I, I like playing with uh, cool new technology. And as you say, I mean, CAM protocols and all of the rest of the stuff. Like I, I like playing around and just seeing what I can do and, and getting things working absolutely optimal. But I, I also understand there is that balance somewhere, somewhere in there that we do need to strike. I think we'll we'll move towards starting to wrap this thing up here, Scott, because I, I do want to respect your time. Uh, one of the questions that's been on my mind, and it's a little bit of a, a variation from the direction we've been going here, but you do work for Haltech and field a lot of technical questions. Uh, is there a common area that you see enthusiasts, tuners, both professional and maybe amateur alike, uh, going wrong? Is there, is there a common theme in the tech requests you get that that you think could easily be fixed? Um, there's two different parts of the tech support at Haltech, and the first part is getting the engine running. How, how do I actually get the run the engine running? Um, probably the most common problem I see in that is basically coming back to the very basics. Have we got spark spark occurring at the right time? I'll get back to that in a second. Have we got fuel and have we got compression? Um, have we got spark occurring at the right time? The bit that gets us the most there is that we've got a four-stroke engine and in a four-stroke engine, the little gears at the top are, are normally smaller than the one down the bottom by a, a half, give or take. Uh, four-stroke engine. Ho- ho- hopefully not give or take, hopefully exactly. Yeah, I like <laughs> to say give or take and then I like to look at the person's face at the other end and think, are they t- do they think I think it's give or take, or do they know that it's exactly half? I'm not quite sure. Yeah. So yeah, if your if your cams aren't spinning at exactly half engine speed, then there's going to be a very serious problem. Something very quickly. So yeah. that would be the most common. What's going on? It's got spark on the crankshaft occurring at the right time. It's got fuel and it's got compression, but it just doesn't run. 
because it's occurring on the exhaust stroke, not the compression stroke. So I would, yeah, I would say there that would be about the most sort of common part that we get with that. Uh, I've I've been tripped up by that occasionally as well. You know, everything looks like it should be working. We are in the hole. We throw a spanner in the works there even more because we actually do a thing called the, the, a function called quick start. And basically what that does, it runs the engine wasted spark, so firing opposing coils and semi-sequential injection in order to get the thing up and running as quickly as possible. So mm-hmm. you'll often start, it runs on, on uh, waste spark semi-sequential if you choose that function below our cranking RPM. So say below 380 RPM. Mm-hmm. So you'll crank it and it'll <laughs> Yeah, that could be really uh, quite uh, deceiving. So <laughs> so that's a pretty solid one. Um, once the thing's actually up and running, um, tuning questions probably are questions about what mixture should I be running for this engine, this power level? Sure. Um, idle control strategy stuff how to get the thing to feel nice, how to get the thing to come back to idle and have that nice sort of stall saver thing where it'll, you know, hang it, you know, 100, 200 RPM above the target idle speed. Um, Things like the the prime pulses, how much do we need to wet the engine down to get the thing to start and run on petrol, on ethanol, Um, typically now that we're talking a lot about E70 and E80 stuff. Yeah where we need a significantly more prime pulse on, on ethanol to get them to run. And it's it's not really intuitive there where it's not, you know, it's, it's not 38% more than petrol. It's significantly more yeah. and you can get yeah. tripped up there and just not notice. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that, that, that meets what I see as well from questions and that, you know, once you've got the engine up and running and granted that that can be problematic, I, if you understand the process, uh, barring mechanical or electronic problems, the actual tuning process uh, you know, usually goes pretty smoothly and then there's the ancillary stuff around cold start, idle speed performance, transient enrichment, enleanment, etc. Those are the things which can get a little fussy and can also be quite quite engine specific. All right, let's uh, let's move on. Um, be interested to know, Scott, uh, twenty odd years at Haltech. Uh, what what's uh, in the future for you? Do you think one day you might decide what you want to do when you grow up, or uh, more of the same? You know what. When I want to, when I grow up, I think that I will probably my, my dream job would be incredibly being a, being a dock hand or something at a marina, mm-hmm. cruising around, playing with the big boats, helping people to drive them, park them, fuel them, service them, okay. maintain them. So that that's truthfully is probably the the job that I never did. Um, mate, at the moment, Haltech probably you know um, like we spoke about, there were some lulls twenty years ago. Um, in the last five years, uh, we've got a huge engineering department. The business is now there, there's six remote offices all owned by the, the same current owner. There's over a hundred staff worldwide. Um, I did love the travel. So I got to travel the world previously. Um, you know, hopefully when things reopen, I'm more excited now than ever to be in all of the remote offices and be training all these guys so that bit by bit, you know, world domination is is the secret or is the the goal at the moment. And so far in the the group, in the field that we're working on, the people that we want to deal with, um, we've got a lot of exciting stuff coming up. So at the moment, 
I can understand how people, and sometimes even myself, I think about it and think I've been here for nearly, nearly 20 years. And I think like, is that right? Like, should I be moving on? Should I be doing something else? But there's so much exciting stuff happening that I still feel like I'm just a new employee here and I'm seeing so many cool things happen that I want to experience and I want to learn that, um, yeah, I think I'd be silly to, um, I think I'd be silly to be down working on the boats at the moment. Fair enough. I, and I think that's what keeps me fired up about this industry and why I've been in it for uh, pretty much as long as you have is that technology is always marching on. We're always seeing cool new products. We've got cool new engines coming out and the technology keeps keeps improving. And you know, th- there is literally always something to learn just about any time we jump on the dyno. And you know, I, I find that uh, you know really refreshing compared to a lot of other potential job avenues. Um Moving on as well, if if you could have your time again and come back to a, an earlier version of uh, Scott and uh, give some advice to, to maybe fast track the, the path that your life's taken so far, what would be that one piece of advice? Um, I think now with online training, specifically your online training and a lot of those worked out examples of how things work, I think doing with just internet and training in general and what's available, starting with something like that to sort of get a bit of an idea of what's going on, then moving straight into a car that you can afford that has got a lot of aftermarket engine management options available that you could simply put a plug-in ECU in something and go through and just start learning individual things bit by bit on your own time. Yeah. Um, that's where it's at. Not being pressured by a workshop where you're on the clock, um, yeah. not being pressured with a car that you have to have running on Monday to to drive to your day job. I think that that's really important. I think that that, that real-world experience is what makes all the difference, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I mean, that's essentially other than the fact we had no online training back when I learned that I, I was self-taught and it was exactly that, a cheap beta that uh, I had an ECU and, and could tinker. And As a Kiwi, what was your cheap beta there? Oh, uh, one of my, it's actually still my favourite car and I miss this to this day, uh, a KE70 DX Corolla. Uh, most Kiwis have put a Bridgeport 13B in that but I went a bit different. I had the 20-valve 4AGE silver top head on a 4AGZE supercharged bottom end with a Garrett GT30. That thing made 500-wheel horsepower and ran uh, 10.51 at 1.32 on the quarter, and that was probably 15 years ago now. That was my streetcar. That was my daily. That is a high-tech first beater. That's that's the real deal. You had four coils and four injectors. Uh, do you have four coils? Possibly not. Yeah, no, I, I went four coils. You can't fit the distributor on the back when you go north south with those. But I, I mean, I, I, I took a while to build up to that. But uh, yeah, I cut my teeth on that car and and, and learned a lot and had a huge amount of fun uh, while I was doing it. So yeah, I can't discount the idea. Uh, you don't have to build anything either these days. Uh, let's be honest, a, a cheap Honda Civic with a B16 or B18C, huge amount of aftermarket support from just about every manufacturer and um, naturally aspirated engine. It, it's going to be pretty hard to, to hurt that while you're learning as well, which is always nice. I think I'm right with you that often across a lot of the internet sort of stuff that I get and a lot of the people that, that approach me directly about all of this sort of stuff, I'm always sort of the engine of choice is K24. Yeah, yeah. 
Excellent. It's hard to, hard to go past. Excellent yeah. thing to learn on. Still costs nothing and pretty much yeah. fit in everything. Um, and once tuned, you really do get a great driving car that makes really good power. Oh yeah, yeah. The yeah Honda got that right with mm. uh, with the K series. All right, we'll uh, we'll leave it there, Scott. And the last question is: if uh, people want to follow you, find out more about you, uh, where can they go? Social media, etc. What what's uh, what so social media stuff? So Haltech run a really great YouTube channel. I do Matt and I do a bunch of the videos on that, and there's a bunch of um, you know how to use Haltech basically. So the Haltech YouTube channel, uh, the Haltech Facebook page. Um, my own page is the Tuning Fork Facebook page. It's not a lot of action there. Um, a lot more of it is on the Haltech Facebook page. Sure. Um, any of those, send us an email, give us a call, whatever's easiest. Um, there's always somebody at the Haltech number to, to pick up the phone if you've got any dramas because, you know, one of the, the global officers is there to pick up the phone, so that helps a lot. Perfect. All right, Scott, thanks a heap for your time today. It's been a really interesting chat and uh, we'll let you get out of here. Wait, pleasure. Lovely to catch up. All right, that concludes our interview. And before we sign off, I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialize in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember, you've got that coupon code. You can use podcast75 at the checkout to get 75 dollars off the purchase of your first course you'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses important to mention that when you purchase a course from us that course is yours for life as well it never expires you can rewatch the course as many times as you like whenever you like the purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership that gives you access to our private members only forum which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions you'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm we dive into that topic for about an hour if you can watch live you can ask questions and get answers in real time if the time zones don't work for you that's fine too you're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive we've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive it is an absolute gold mine so remember that coupon code podcast 75 check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses